Welcome to the City Collective Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. This morning, our scripture reading this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Now, when when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Great. Good morning, City Collective. How are you? Nice to be here. Uh, you don't know who I am. It's going to happen in these moments, but um, my name is Rob. I'm really, really glad to be here. I, this is home for me. I grew up in Surrey, or as I say, I survived Wally. Um, and it's, it's good to be here. I have family here, so I get to hang out with family this week. Um, <clears throat> I am the Associate Superintendent of the Canada Covenant. So City Collective, you're part of this family of churches of about 38 churches across Western Canada. And I work with that that group and my focus is on clergy well-being, helping pastors develop resilience and depth and care for themselves and their families. And then I do special projects with the Canada Covenant uh, from mostly focusing on issues of justice. So I, I'm just really delighted to be here. Um, <clears throat> the only concern I had was maybe Pastor Jason's judgment in asking me to preach because he asked a senior citizen to come in <laughs> and preach to you. Uh, I, I, hopefully it won't be too, too painful. But, um, uh, but when I heard that, that, that you're looking at the Gospel of Matthew, and particularly this fall, this, this Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes is just like, yes. I have been profoundly impacted by the Sermon on the Mount, uh, still am. 
they are some of the most famous words of Jesus, uh, whether you, you follow him or not. They are sort of this vision of the way of being in the world that's quite powerful. So I am just thrilled. Um, these compelling blessings, these visionary statements, uh, you know this, uh, Pastor Jason's told you that, that, that they're for this group of forming around Jesus, and he, he's in a sense trying to give them a, a way of understanding what it meant to follow him, and in the Sermon on the Mount, we kind of get his manifesto. This is, this is what you're signing up for if you say, I follow, follow Jesus, so I'm delighted to kind of unpack this with you. But before we look at these, a, a couple more Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst. I just want to kind of re remind us of these beatitudes and kind of what, what are they doing? Like, what are they? So the first thing I would say is that beatitudes as good news, that they are, they are a, um, a statement of, of really good news. So that, that's the first thing I'd want you to hear. I think... The people in front of Jesus, when he speaks these Beatitudes, are going like, seriously? Wow. Here's why. There is a cultural script that lies behind this work of Jesus. And the culture, one of the cultural scripts, narratives, is this. That you would, you, you would be considered blessed if you were powerful, you would be considered blessed if you were rich, if you were a landowner, if you were a leader, if you were well-fed. You would be the in-group. That's the narrative of the ancient world. When things go well, obviously God is favoring you. So you're in. You're on the top. And if you're in the group that is poor and powerless, hunger, hungry and thirsty, a servant or a slave, you're on the outside. God certainly is not favoring you. You're on, you're, in the, you're on the bottom. And along comes Jesus, and he says, here's my opinion. Here's actually what, what actually God thinks of these, these narratives. And it's sort of an inverted way of looking at the world. And he says, according to me, the people who think they're at the top, actually you ought to come down to the bottom. And those who are on the bottom, the last, the poor, the hungry, the thirsty, those who feel like they're on the inside, once you come on up, come on inside, the welcoming, gracious perspective of God is that you actually are the most powerful. Those who are broken and lying low to the ground in the kingdom of God are those actually that Jesus says, come on up. You are by gracious welcome of God and who God is you are drawn close. So I think, first of all, we have to remember these Beatitudes. They're really good news for the people right in front of Jesus who are poor and thirsty and hungry and persecuted. And they're going like, what? That's a new narrative. That's a new script. It's a little like finding if you've ever found an old hockey card in your closet and you pull it out and it's like pristine condition and it's, it's whatever that hockey player is and you Google the value of this card and you find out, oh my goodness, it's worth a dollar or whatever. Or that dusty old frame of picture up in your grandmother's attic. You find it and you discover it is an incredible value. So these Beatitudes are good news. We ought to feel that. I would want us to feel that. Like this is, 
This is not onerous to receive this. This is good news. So then the second thing is the Beatitudes as transformative. The history of interpreting the, these sayings as it's kind of come to us, obviously through the text and through history, is that many scholars think that these Beatitudes, Jesus is working on several levels. One is he's announcing good news to those who are kind of on the outside, come on in. These people groups, uh, he's welcoming. But he's also working on the level of vision. I like the Beatitudes this way, that what they're like, that Jesus is hosting an eye clinic for those who don't see very well. He's hosting a vision clinic for those whose vision had gone askew. Israel, we know, if you think about why did Jesus come at the particular moment that he came, when the time had fully come, the scriptures tell us, God became a baby born of a virgin woman and came at a time. Why? Because Israel, though they didn't know this, was right at the edge of their own destruction. Not only inner destruction, moral destruction, virtue destruction, but also literally at the edge of destruction. And so Jesus comes along and said, I want to help you see clearly who you are, Israel. And he comes and, and these Beatitudes, in a sense, are for Israel who's lost her way and has become nearsighted. Nearsightedness, if you have nearsightedness, anybody nearsighted? Okay, that's me. You, you really only can see what's around you. You can't see very far. Israel had, by self-preoccupation, begun to kind of erode her sense of purpose according to God in, in the world. And so these Beatitudes are giving them a vision of how they should see the world, how Israel actually should see the world when she had lost her sight. A paradigmatic parable is John 9. And if you want to read it this afternoon, the whole parable is about eyesight. In John 9, Jesus tells a parable, not a parable, sorry, he heals a man born with blindness, and the religious leaders are concerned that, that Jesus has healed someone who's blind, and they, they're, they're debating Jesus, they're, they're questioning, they're interrogating the family, and the whole point of that story in John 9 is, Jesus says, you know what, if you say that you can see, you're really blind. He's speaking to the religious leaders, and he says, you actually are blinded. So the coming of Christ when he acts, when he speaks, when he heals, and what he does is reminding Israel of who they should be. He's trying to help them see. But here's what I've noticed, and here's what's a bit unsettling for me. Israel thought their eyesight was fine. They saw themselves as a tree that looked lovely. There's a slide here. This is uh, just a few blocks from my house. I took it this week, and I've noticed this tree. It, so Israel saw themselves as, as a, a, a fruitful, beautiful tree. But how Jesus saw them was this way. Half a tree. It's the same tree. From a different vantage point, it looks just fine. But Jesus is standing and looking at the right, at looking right at Israel and say, actually, Israel, you're half a tree. So, I always am amazed at that tree. It's like, it's going to fall over at some point. And maybe that's the point. When Jesus is speaking these Beatitudes, he's, he's crafting a vision to say, this is the way that the world should, how you should see. And the way we see the world is really important. For example, 
If you see a person whose color of their skin is different than your color, and you associated certain characteristics with that color of that skin that are not positive, and are actually quite destructive and oppressive, and you think your color of your skin is better, we have what? You, we have racism. And that's a destructive force, but it really starts with how you see the world. If you see the boundaries of your country as impermeable, and anybody who is seeking refuge and help from another country, not because they've done anything wrong, but they're simply seeking safety, and you see the boundaries of your space as nobody else comes in that is the other, you have a particular way of looking at the world that impacts immigrants. Jesus is working at this level of trying to help them see better because their eyesight had become nearsighted. So the Beatitudes, they're working at the level of good news, they're working at the level of vision, and then lastly, I think they're working at the level of the Beatitudes as critique. He's critiquing his own people. It's not a positive thing, but in fact, I'm sure that those listening in on the Beatitudes, the religious leaders are going, that's not the script that we follow. We follow our script, which is the powerful, the wealthy, the well-fed, are at the center of the story. So the text was read for us. That's sort of the background, again, a reminder of what these things are doing in the world of Jesus and could do for us. And so he goes up in the side of the mountain, which is echoes, actually. It reverberates an Old Testament story of Moses, who, by the way, uh, was called meek. <laughs> Just, he, Moses goes up, receives the new guidance of the law that's given to the people to guide them. Jesus takes some of his family up to the side of the mountain and is going to give them a new way of being, a new way of seeing, a new way of living. And he says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Dallas Willard says, Aren't the meek the shy ones? Aren't the meek the easily intimidated, the unassertive? And when I think of meek, that's what I think of, unassertive, shy, not very strong. What I want to do is take this word and this, this thing that Jesus is saying, the meek, the meek actually inherit the earth. And I want to put beside the word meek, the word power. For meekness is the use of a particular kind of power or using power in a particular kind of way for the benefit of others. So, the domineering and the aggressive use power to control and rule over to create their own kingdoms and their own way of being. So, if you don't get your way, you use power, personal and or positional power, to get your way in the world. It happens over and over and over again where people or leaders or communities use power for their own benefit and they subjugate, they oppress those around them. That's a form of power. Meekness is not that kind of power. Meekness is using power in a different kind of way, not with force to hurt, but using power to build up. I worked or volunteered with the RCMP for several years when I lived just outside of Calgary, Alberta. And I can tell you, I got front row seat to how power is used in homes to harm. 
domestic violence, in particular violence against women, is a real deal. That is the kind of force that our world thinks is true power, but it's horrific. Jesus says there's a kind of way of being in the world that's very powerful, but it's different than the force that we are used to. It's the kind of power that refuses to seek revenge when it is hurt. It's the kind of power that is ready to endure suffering to bring about good over the long haul. Meekness is loving restraint. Meekness is yielding the ground to somebody else in order to maintain the relationship with that person. As I was preparing this, I came across this saying that, that it's better to yield your ground in an argument with your friend than to lose the friendship. Meekness, it's translated in other parts of the Bible, gentleness. It's translated humility. But it is using power for the benefit of others. I like what Rebecca Eklund says in her book. She, she did a, it's a fantastic book. It's the history of the Beatitudes since the time of Christ till today. It's, it's fascinating. Here's what she says is, a meek person knows how to use power to address the right things with the right people for the right length of time. Jesus, of course, is the model of meekness in perfection. Think about how he interacted with the children. Again, the script in the ancient world, children didn't matter. They were off to the side, but in Jesus' time, when he interacted with the kids, you know, bring them close, picks them up, blesses them, uses his personal power to bring about blessing. Of course, the script and the disciples said, no, 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 no. Kids don't have a place in this kingdom. No, Jesus says, they do. Meekness is gentleness. Or think about those in the margins where Jesus would hang out with and welcome them close by. Most people, of, of, again, Jesus hanging out in, in parties with prostitutes and tax collectors, and you know how the scriptures say this, is using his presence and his power not to oppress, but gently to raise up people who are oppressed. Meekness is a form of power that is gentle and loving and gracious. So meekness, though, never rules out decisive confrontation. Jesus, in the temple, misuse of the temple, said this is to be a house of prayer, cleans the tables out. Or Jesus in front of Pilate, never afraid to confront authority. But he does so with a power that is sort of like from below. It's gentle, but yet it's still power. So what would it look like for us to move toward this posture in the world? Blessed are the meek. They're gonna, they actually are the true landowners. And in the ancient world, the landowners were the most powerful. Those who are meek are those who are going to be most powerful in the kingdom of God. What would it look like for us? So you might be asking, okay, how does meekness relate to us right now? That's a fair question. I wonder about the same thing. 
But I, wanna, I just want to offer you a possibility. And I'll, right up front, I could be wrong. Okay, I'll just say, I could be wrong. And if you disagree with this sort of perspective, you could just say, well, it's the old guy talking. I don't need to agree with him. So um, here's, here's how I think meekness matters. For the last two and a half years, the latent and hidden disdain for people who see the world differently than I do or you do has exploded into public view. What we would never say to someone's face, it's like the lid is off and it, we are now all free <laughs> to say what we actually think, whether it's on social media or in person, about what we think about the world and what we think about those who are different than us. Think, pick the topics, pandemic health guidelines, masks or vaccine, pick politics, pick the nature of the church and the world. We have all had front row seat, seat, I think, in the last two years of division and disdain, culturally and within the, within the church. I still lament, I'm still lamenting what I have witnessed by followers of Jesus Christ who say Jesus is the one that I follow. And I, I, I'm probably a participant in that, but I lament that. But here's what I wonder. Here's sort of my little thought thing. What if meekness had been our go-to virtue during the pandemic? What if this, to collectively, now I'm thinking church, collectively we had this virtue, this way of being and relating to one another, where we would yield our ground in order to remain in relationship with each other, never afraid to say what we think, but always with a form of gentleness that sustains relationships and uses power not to say you are wrong, but would you come close? I wonder if we would be in a different space. I wonder about that. You see, the longer that I hang out with Jesus, and maybe this is true for you too, I begin to wonder, Jesus actually might be right. He might actually be right when it said, blessed, happy, fortunate, or the meek. There are going to be the true, powerful landowners in this new kingdom. I wonder, what would it look like for City Collective to do a seminar in meekness. Like, that's kind of weird, Rob. And I'm just maybe kind of joking. But when was the last time you heard any organization, leadership or otherwise, Christian or not, who say, we are going to teach people how to be meek? I think it's powerfully possible that if we embrace this way of looking and living in the world, that our winsome witness will take off in a world of violence where we do not use our power in a way that brings harm, but yet we are loving and make, and people wake up to that kind of power. So, blessed are the meek, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, briefly, the second one. When Jason said I had two Beatitudes, I was thinking, okay, how do you do two Beatitudes in the time frame? But hey, you're not going anywhere. I'm, I'm visiting preacher. So here we go. Blessed are those 
who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hunger and thirst. I think this one's pretty obvious. I think this is a sense of even though you were hungry and thirsty standing in front of Jesus when he, when he spoke this, they said absolutely they were hungry. Absolutely the disciples were thirsty. They, they were poor, by the way. The, uh, but they said, you're going to be satisfied. So hungry and thirsty. When, you, when you're really hungry, there's nothing much else you can think about. That's really all. You're preoccupied. And if you're really hungry and if you're deathly thirsty... It is the motivation that is going to drive you for your next moment and your next day. You're, all you're going to be thinking about is hunger and thirst. That's the way the body works. Jesus uses an analogy rooted in our body. Blessed are those happy, fortunate are those who are famished, thirsty, and hungry. They're going to be satisfied. We, when we're famished, all we can think about is moving toward the longing and the desperation or the fulfillment of our desperation toward food. He's pushing at something. Blessed are those who have a drive that is built in to move them towards something. So that's hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirst, though, for righteousness. That is a little trickier. Uh, we bump into now in this word righteousness a church word. So sorry about that. It is a church word. Uh, you, you probably have filled it. You've already just instinctively filled the definition for you of what righteousness is. And, and it's a complicated word. These are hard words to translate into English. So righteousness in very simple level has vertical component to it, has a horizontal component to it. The vertical part of righteousness is this God and us relationship, how we relate to God. And the, the horizontal dimension of righteousness is how we relate to the world, in particular, how we, f we, we act on behalf of God for the benefit of the world. I think of it this way. Have you ever broken a bone? No hands up, but if you've broken a bone, and if it's a kind of a clean break, the bones get misaligned. I imagine it's quite painful. I'm sorry to, if this has happened to you, but it's not happened to me. But so the bone is misaligned, and so you go, and the doctor, surgeons might put a pin in, but they'll realign the bones, cast it, and the bone will heal back in alignment. Righteousness is the relocation of that which is dislocated between us and God, being realigned by grace and the power of Jesus. We have a right relationship then with God. By, by seeking God, by loving God. And so righteousness has this personal us and God thing going on, uh, and it's something we should pursue. We should be hungry for this pure, right relationship with God that transforms us over time. I think that's pretty clear. But the word also righteous has this horizontal component too, because in the Scripture, just as often as it's translated righteous, it's translated justice. This is the part of God's work in the world where things are out of alignment and God longs to put them back in alignment. That's, why, that's what justice is. When things are unjust, God's work in the world wants to put them back in alignment so that those who are treated unjustly, those who are, 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 are oppressed or broken, are put back into right relationship with each other. It's the horizontal part. Fortunate is everyone 
who was famished and parched for Christ-like holiness, vertical, and justice, for they will be satisfied. Or, happy is your life when you are desperate (laughs) to be made well in your life with God, and you are passionately hungry and thirsty for justice in the world. It's working on these two levels. But I've noticed something, and I, I think we might connect on this one, that my longings and my hungers and my thirsts are not always in alignment, and they don't always move me toward God. They don't always move me toward justice. If I were to be totally honest, which is probably what you would like me to be, I don't want to be totally dishonest, but okay, I'm going to be honest right now. I just tell you, my longings are often disordered. They point me in all kinds of directions that are anything about honoring this God-Rob relationship and this justice relationship. I often have longings and desires for self-preservation, for comfort. Not always, but often. I have desires for a pain-free life. (laughs) I have, are are we connecting? Our desires are all kind of messed up sometimes. And so when Jesus comes along and said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the right kind of things, you will be satisfied. It's a challenging word. A, a, a philosopher, a writer that I've connected with over the many years, his name is James Smith, wrote a tiny little book uh, a couple years ago, You Are What You Love. Anybody read that book? Okay, so anyway, I, I shouldn't say that because now you're going to go, I, I should have stock in Amazon or something. You know. Anyway, you might go buy it, but I'm not saying buy the book. I'm, here's, here's his point. He says we are like sharks. Human beings are like sharks. You ever, sharks never stop moving. They're always moving. They're always looking for what? Their next meal. They can't stop. So he, James Smith says that we actually are existential sharks. Human beings, us, we are always looking and we move toward that which we think is our purpose and our mission, looking and trying to find something that gives us meaning. We have existential questions, so we're always moving. Another way he says it, we, we always move like gravity, water on a hill always goes to the bottom. People will always naturally, instinctively, passionately follow their loves. We, you know, the, the ancient line is we are what we think. He, he uses St. Augustine and disagrees with us that we actually are what we love, that our loves define us more than our thoughts. But what is it that we love? And this is where I would have to say, I love a whole host of things that aren't always righteousness and justice. And that's just me. And I, I don't know if you're connecting, but I, this is the nature of following Jesus is that He comes and He gets close and he, he, he pushes in on us and says, I want to talk about something that's really important. And what you love is critical to your well-being. So our loves can be wonderful. Think about all the different loves you have. Tacos, come on, whatever, whatever. I'm just kidding. Uh, you, you love, we love our families. We love, we love God's world. We love God. And then our, our loves can also be unhealthy. So the portrait that Jesus is painting is blessed are the hunger, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness as personal and societal. It's longing. 
So Jesus sets the pace on this. He sets what it looks like to hunger like this and to thirst like this. Jesus, we know, weeps, weeps, weeps for Jerusalem. He's weeping for his people as he comes in in his last week before his crucifixion. Why? Because they, had, they, had for, they just didn't see who he was, God with them. Jesus is heartbroken by the misplaced loves of his disciples, and he's always trying to direct them toward this. So another way to think about this beatitude is being discontented about the right things. Being discontented about the right things. Discontented enough that we would pursue God in right relationship again and discontented enough with injustices in the world that we would participate in acts of justice for the benefit of the mission of God in a world. By grace, I was, um, I, I got to know an, a new friend a couple years ago. Her name is Christina Conroy. She is a theologian at Ambrose University in, Cal in Calgary and she's become a friend of mine. But her claim to fame is this, not that she, she's a fantastic teacher, but her claim to fame is that she logged more in-person live um, presence at the Truth and Re Reconciliation meetings across Canada than anybody who was a volunteer. She listened to thousands and thousands of hours of live testimony of, of indigenous Canadians who were hurt by residential schools. It, it, sobering to listen to her. But the reason I bring this up is that her experience of listening to people changed the trajectory of how she uses every moment of her day. She is always trying to find ways, either telling the story of the residential school history and calling for God's people to care that these are, these are people, sisters and brothers, that need some sort of response and understanding. And she works theologically at this level of justice. And she lives a life of simplicity in order that her resources can be used by women in particular who were the recipients of abuse through residential schools. For me, when I think of blessed are the hungry and thirsty those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, I, I just think of Christina. <laughs> and I would, want, I would want to have that sort of passion and that sort of way of being in the world. She, she says quite simply, because people ask, how, how could we be involved in justice related to the residential school history in Canada or with indigenous peoples in general? She says, just do a few things. Just show up, go to events, Go to indigenous-led events, whatever they are, cultural, uh, art, just go just and learn. Just keep your eyes open. Just go. Just hang out with indigenous peoples. Second thing is, is read indigenous authors. Read their stories. Read from their lens what their experience was like. And the third, she just would say, develop a friend. Just develop a friend. So when Jesus comes to us, and these Beatitudes, this one in particular, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, it has potentially a very positive impact on society if we could hear the good news.
Everything that Jesus points us toward in these two Beatitudes, everything that He calls us to do, He's been doing all along. And again, I would make an invitation for us today. It might be time to hear the call of Christ. Come to me, everybody who is tired and worn out. Come to me, learn from me, for I am meek. I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest. You will find your life blessed, happy, fortunate, as we hang out close with Jesus, who speaks these beautiful words to us. So I'll be praying for you, City Collective, as you lean into this way of being, if you would pray for me, for God's glory and for our neighbor's good. Let's pray together. I invite you just in this, in this space of quiet. What are you hearing Jesus say to you today? What do you need to pay attention to? Jesus, we pray that we would open up our heart again, open up our lives to be formed a little bit more, that we might have clarity of sight, that we might have purity of heart, that we might move toward others with meekness and justice. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it encouraged and blessed you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.